Hi, guys. I want to welcome you all here. And uh, here's what we're going to do today. We started a series, as most of you know, uh, several months ago through the book of Revelation. We're going to continue that today. Uh, Today, we're going to actually be looking at something a little bit different, Uh, still be in the book of Revelation, but I'm going to more so be focusing upon a theme that sort of kind of organically rises in the text and try to spend some time addressing that and looking at that. In short, I'll tell you what that theme is, and the theme basically is just intense spiritual, demonic battle, spiritual warfare, however you want to describe it. It goes by lots of different names, uh, lots of different titles. What we want to try to do is address it. Um, The reality is, is the world in which we live in is sort of intersected by a spiritual realm. And a lot of times we're not aware of that. And a lot of times we live sort of in ignorance of the fact that our world, our physical world, is intersected by a spiritual world. And the reason for that, obviously, obvious reasons, is we don't see it. We don't see demons. We don't see angels. We don't see uh, demonic type of activity in ways that we would oftentimes think to see or find demonic activity. And as a result of that, we oftentimes just sort of are led to believe more of a naturalistic idea of things. In other words, what I see is really what exists. And uh, the Bible actually describes that's not true. There is a spiritual realm that is at work, that does have great power, that does uh, exert a lot of authority and destructive forces over the world in which we live in. And what we want to try to do in looking at this is to look at it from a perspective that tries to couch it biblically. I'm going to do the best that I can to be as biblical with this topic as I can um, and not try to get off into great diversions. Um, There are two major ways in which oftentimes the study of spiritual warfare or demonic activity can oftentimes fall into. One category are those that would just sort of omit it, ignore it, be ignorant of it, not acknowledge it, uh, for the obvious reasons I just mentioned. And uh, the other category are those that spend a lot of time thinking about it, that see a demon behind everything, that for whatever reason have this tendency to see uh, evil, demonic, spiritual activity behind every little detail, to the degree where it just gets obsessive and compulsive and where people tend to sort of belittle any type of human activity or human effort or human responsibility because everything uh, is controlled by a demon. And these are two extremes. I want to try as best as we can to look at them and try to provide kind of a biblical perspective as best as we can in looking at these things. Uh, That being said, uh, yesterday as I kind of started announcing this uh, through, you know, my Twitter account, through Facebook and all that, I kind of posted on there. One of the things I would like to do, because we're going to be looking at it today and uh, for certain next week and possibly even a third week, I've got, just to give you perspective, I've got like six or seven pages of notes. Typically, an hour sermon for me is like one and a half pages of notes, all right, so I'm not going to preach four hours today, so we will be sure to break it up, and uh, we're going to get through as much as we can today, and then we're going to carry the rest of it over to next week, and what we're not able to get to next week, we'll we'll possibly get into a third week if need be. But that being said, one of the things I really want to try to do is do as best as we can a job at trying to address this. I do know a lot of people have questions about this stuff. A lot of people do and have had encounters with 
things of this nature or have had sort of paranormal type experiences or things that they don't know how to define or describe or certain types of oppressive type uh, emotions or uh, like night terrors or uh, demonic dreams or things of that that where you just feel overwhelmed by a sense or a presence of evil. And maybe you've not, been know how, you've not known how to uh, identify it or describe it or to work through it. Um, and you are trying to figure out some answers. I want to do the best as we can to try to provide as many answers for you as we can. Uh, one of the reasons for this is scripturally speaking, according to, uh, I think it's 2 Corinthians, Paul basically says this. 2 Corinthians chapter 2.11, he says this. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan... We are not ignorant of his deceptions or devices or his schemes. So in other words, basically Paul himself says we don't want to be ignorant of these things. Uh, but on the other side, we want to be able to know how to address these things in a proper manner so that we are not outwitted. In other words, we want to be able to know our enemy, not so that we can spend a lot of time being obsessed with our enemy, but sort of like an ultimate fighter. You want to know what your enemy is like, all right? I like ultimate fighting. I've always liked ultimate fighting. And you know that if you know anything about ultimate fighting, you know you got to know your opponent. you got to have a proper matchup. And the reality is we're no match for Satan. We're no match for demons. We're no match for evil. However, there are things that we could know about our uh, enemy. We could know about the devil. We could know about Satan and have some sense of understanding so that when uh, pitfalls come, when traps are thrown at us, when snares kind of come in our way, we know how to avoid them. Or at least we know how to get out of them. Does that make sense? Because if we stay sort of in a realm of ignorance, when we do find ourselves stumbling and falling underneath some of these things, which we will, and some of you have, maybe even as of last night or even just half an hour ago, and the reality is we want to try to help you know how to get out of these things, by and large, pointing us back to Jesus, that we're going to see rise up in the passage here that hopefully will capture our attention. So with that being said, the reason why I brought up uh, the Facebook and the Twitter thing is what I would like to do is I would like to provide some time either next week or the following week or at some point either next week or the following week of a little bit of a Q&A. If we have some time at the end of next week, maybe do like a little Q&A. Uh, but I don't want to just go cold t- turkey and take answer- or questions from the audience because that's where weird people come in, ask weird things that have nothing to do with the topic, and I'm left up here trying to figure out what to do with weird stuff. So I'm asking you to email those things to me, or if you are kind of techie and you know of uh, software, uh, websites that you can text things to, and we can kind of get it onto a website, things like that, uh, email that to me. I want to know about that. If you're not my Facebook friend, become my Facebook friend. And uh, you can email me those questions. And uh, I want to know how we can answer some of the questions that you guys have so that we can provide answers for you as best as we can. So we'll try to do that next week. And again, like I said, if not next week, uh, the week following as far as the Q&A. And again, if we're not able to have time to do it here, uh, we will record it at uh, our evening service. And we'll put that up on the web and put that up on our website so that you guys can have uh, the answers to those. So these are your questions. I'm asking you guys to uh, give to me. And I've already had a bunch of uh, good questions coming already. Uh, I'm excited. And there's definitely a general theme that's being uh, expressed through some of the questions. So make sure that you uh, check that out. All right. That being said, what I want to do right now is I really want to pray before we jump in. Because the reality is, is that this stuff is real. Uh, There is a demonic force. There is a demonic reality in the world in which we live in. And like I said already, we don't want to be ignorant, nor do we want to 
spend too much emphasis and too much uh, mind and energy upon this, but we want to be able to have a proper balance that keeps these things in a proper light uh, to provide answers for us, to help us in our lives, as well as at the same time to bring us to greater victory through Christ. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask Jesus to help us here this morning, and then we'll jump into the text, and we'll get to work on a lot of content that I have, and we'll see how far we get today. Father, I just ask you right now that you would give us uh, sound minds, give us wisdom that comes down from above, from you, Lord, that's peaceable, that gives us uh, and points our minds and our attention to Christ. God, that's who we want to be able to see here today. As much, Lord, as we are exhorted, and it's important for us to know about our enemy, uh, it's more important for us to know about our Savior and how to look to him and how to trust him, how to cast our lives upon his mercy. So Father, we ask you right now that you would help us to understand your word, give us sharp minds to be able to understand these things, and uh, just be glorified in the time that we have here together. And uh, we give you the praise and glory, uh, even right now. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. That being said, I want to basically just uh, take a look at the next uh, slide um, that we have up here. I want to read you a quote from C.S. Lewis, who I think, you know, no Bible study is complete without a nice quote from C.S. Lewis. And here's a great one. Love this one. Maybe some of you read Screw Tape Letters. Here's what uh, C.S. Lewis said. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Totally agree with that. Again, that kind of leads or bleeds into sort of the extremes that I already kind of covered. Okay, so take a look at the next slide. As we kind of jump into this, I'm going to show you a couple of books uh, that I found to be really extremely helpful for me um, that uh, I, I think actually could help you. Uh, again, um, they, these are Puritans. I love Puritans. I've always read the Puritans, and uh, uh, I honestly would love to see a, uh, a recovery of the uh, Puritans once again. And, uh, and, and I think these guys provide some great, great material um, on practically how to work with these. One is called The Mortification of Sin. This is actually by one of my favorite theologians, scholars, pastors, a guy named John Owen. And uh, he really deals line by line trying to help the believer to work through and navigate how to uh, put to death sin. That's what the word mortification means. The word uh, mortify, or it comes from the root word to put to death or die uh, to put to death sin in our lives, get some really great practical advice. The second of which is a, by another Puritan guy named Thomas Brooks, a Precious Remedies Against uh, Satan's Devices. Again, another really great practical book that just gives some really good sound truth and advice in terms of working through and navigating through some of these difficult things that hopefully uh, today will bring some light into some of the areas in your life as to maybe why some things are happening in your life the way they are. Some things that you may not have been able to previously uh, define or uh, put some sort of uh, articulation to. Hopefully today will help you with that and at least at, maybe put it on the map for you. That's where we're going to go. So what I want to do before we jump in, and again, like I said, because we've been going through the book of Revelation, because the idea of looking at this is going to sort of be derived from the book of Revelation, I want to give a little bit of a context as to why we're sort of springboarding from this passage on into this larger theme, larger topic of demonic, 
uh, slash spiritual warfare today. So with that being said, I want you to take your Bibles and open up to the book of Revelation chapter 12 uh, and 13 are the two chapters that we're going to be looking at. We're going to spend a lot of time in, those, in these chapters, but what I want to do is I want to give you guys a quick little summary or synopsis of these chapters. And what you're going to find is John, in describing the events that unfold for us in chapter 12 and 13, is he's going to describe uh, what is basically seen or identified as a dragon. And this dragon is very aggressive. Uh, he's lethal. He's deadly. He's angry. We're described, the, the dragon is actually identified as having wrath. He's angry. He hates God. And he hates all of God's uh, people whom God loves. And he's working desperately to oppose and destroy and deceive God's beloved people. Uh, chapter 13 deals with the dragon, but deals with the dragon sort of a behind-the-scenes way. And what you see is sort of the famous chapter, chapter 13. It's a chapter that, like, all nutjobs love to quote because it's a chapter that talks about 666, right? It's like 666. Everybody's into that chapter. Remember before I was a Christian, all right? It's going to totally date me, but I, I, I loved Iron Maiden, right? Like, back in the day, like early 80s, I was into that. And I remember being all, like, into 666 and being like, that's so cool, you know? And the reality is, is I had no idea what I was talking about, no, no idea at all what the chapter's all about. But the reality is, is it's about demonic activity. And the dragon is behind the scenes at work with two other beasts that get identified. Uh, the first beast is basically depicting world, governor, uh, world government, world leadership, um, the, the, the type of despotism that we see in the world, uh, sort of in snapshots or maybe in kind of echo form, like with Hitler or Stalin um, or with uh, past leaders of like Rwanda and some other areas where people have just sort of taken over and they've not been kind, not been good to the people. They've taken advantage. The rich have gotten rich. The poor have gotten poor. Nobody seems to really care. Um, he seems to tell us in the chapter uh, that the dragon is actually the one that empowers the beast to do this. Um, and then the second beast is going to identify, I think most scholars would agree, has something to do with sort of false religion or this idea of false Jesuses, uh, false Christs. Jesus himself, uh, while he was on the earth, uh, told his disciples, there will come a day, you need to be aware of this, is what Jesus said, there will come a day that there will be false prophets, false Christs, false messiahs, false teachers who will come and they will look like they're the real deal, but they're not the real deal. They'll be able to throw down miracles. They'll be able to do all these typical things that oftentimes would wow and woo people, but in reality, they're false. And again, I think what's happening here in these chapters is that John is giving us a picture uh, from God's perspective. Now, let me try to explain. I think in the world in which we live, I think most of you would agree that we have this tendency of viewing things in one particular way, and God has a way of viewing things in another particular way. Let me give you an example. We can look at the world in which we live and just look at a guy like Hitler and just be like, ah, he was a bad leader. I think what John's trying to convey is that Hitler's not just a bad leader, but he's, even, he's an evil beast. He's an evil beast, like chapter 13 says, who's actually been given power by the dragon himself. Let me give you another example. Chapter uh, 12 of Book of Revelation identifies this person, or this, this, this one is, that's identified as the dragon. Now we know, according to the chapter, that that's actually Satan. Now if you and I were to stop for a moment and sort of like draw a picture of what you think Satan is, I think the majority of us would have an image in our mind 
that Satan looks a lot like something that came out of the Renaissance, right? It's kind of this red, devilish being. It's got horns on top of his head, kind of a pitchfork in his hand. He wears red tights, a little bit effeminate, drinks decaf, kind of a weird guy. That's, that's the devil. That's the devil. And we think that that's the devil. And the reality is, that's not the devil. That's just the picture that we think the devil is. And to be really quite frank with you, I think the devil's stoked with that. I think he loves being depicted or caricatured as something that looks nothing like him. Because in God's perspective, God says he's not some weird, effeminate dude with red tights on. He is a dragon. He's deadly. He's evil. He's out to destroy. He has a strong, powerful ability and strength in his tail that has the ability to destroy, that has the ability to take people down. That's what I think John's trying to convey. That there are ways in which we can view things that are not consistent with the way God views things. Does this make sense? Let me give you another example. We do this in our culture all the time. We say things like this. Oh yeah, so-and-so just had an affair. When God say he had an adultery or committed adultery or committed fornication. I mean, you never hear a dude on the news say, oh yeah, so-and-so had an engaged in fornication. It's a horrible word. Nobody likes to say fornicate. It's just a bad word. It's not good for the five o'clock news. It's not good for anybody's report. So we say they had an affair. It sounds nicer. It's a lot more easier to swallow. But the reality is, is we live in this sort of realm all the time. We have this tendency to take certain ways or certain things which God would look at and say, no, this is what this is. And we look at it and say, no, no, no. I think it's, I think it's a little bit lesser than that. And here's what I'm trying to say. We need to be able to think on the same level as God. We need to see things in the same light in which God sees things. And I think part and parcel of the reason why we tend to flirt with sin as much as we do, one of the reasons why we have sort of this aversion to a holy life as we do, because we have these caricatures in our mind. We think holiness. Some freak wearing a robe and just doing weird things, praying prayers for six hours a day, and we think that's holiness, I don't want to be holy. You see what I'm saying? We have a caricature, and based upon that caricature, we avoid it. The same thing with Satan. If we think Satan is being like this guy who's like the, the life of the party, everybody wants to be like him, and we will then think, ah, no big deal. Satan, demons, no big deal. But if we view it the way God views it, it changes our perspective. Wouldn't you agree? So what I think we need to be able to try to do is to think biblically on this. And I'm going to go through this very quickly because what I want you to notice is that God is trying to convey through John's uh, revelation, again, which is, uh, you know, spoken in, in a lot of colorful language, very flamboyant, and Satan basically creates kind of this uh, exaggerated view to emphasize the way God really sees him. Now again, if you're the type of person that likes to take uh, you think Western, meaning you like to look at for every little detail. You're very analytical. Uh, honestly, I think you're going to have a lot of hard time reading through chapter 12 and chapter 13. It's not going to make a lot of sense to you because you're going to be stuck somewhere around like, well, I wonder what the fourth horn's all about. Mm, I wonder what that crown symbolizes. You're going to get lost. But if you are able to read like a child, to be quite frank, if you're able to just read the text the way it flows, the way it comes across, what the picture I think that you'll see, 
and a larger perspective, meaning you stand back and you look at the larger picture and not just simple tiny elements or detail in the picture, but you look at the whole perspective, I think what you'll see is this. You'll see a dragon that's the identity of Satan himself. And his main objective throughout all chapter 12 is to uh, destroy, to attack, to bring devastation through this series of attacks. And five times we read of the devil, the dragon, attacking. Five times. And yet each and every single time the devil attacks, the dragon uh, fights and, and battles, every single time his purposes are thwarted. Every single time. That's, that's what chapter 12 is all about. I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, the, the first one. Um, why don't we go back real fast. The dragon seeks to devour the woman. Uh, a lot of people uh, you know, are, are kind of gridlocked in terms of trying to decide, you know, is this Israel, is this Mary, the church? Yeah. Um, again, but what ends up happening, the dragon tries to attack the lady, the woman, whoever her identity is, and yet God supernaturally prepares a place for her in the wilderness. Again, the devil and his attempts are thwarted. The second example, the dragon battles Michael. God gives Michael the ability, the power to uh, battle back and to defeat uh, the devil and to basically banish him to the earth. Again, I think the picture is God speaking, saying, again, I attacked the devil and he lost once again. Uh, Let me say something real fast. Um, Sometimes we think of the devil being sort of God's um, equal, sort of in a, you know, negative form. Uh, What you need to think is not in terms of dualism, meaning there are two equal and opposing forces on the planet, not yin and yang, okay, not uh, uh, powerful evil, powerful good, at opposite ends of each other, battling out each other. What you need to think is you need to think biblically, and the biblical form of thinking with regard to this is that Satan is a created being, that God himself created Satan. God created the devil. He created Lucifer, who ended up through rebellion, became the devil, as we would identify him. Meaning, he is a created being. Jesus has authority over him. If you want to match the devil up with somebody, probably the closest enemy would be like Michael. But even still, Michael has authority and a power that's able to accomplish and defeat him. But again, Michael, where does Michael get his authority from? From God. It's vested authority. God gives it to Michael. Michael then exercises that authority to defeat the devil. Take a look at the third one. The dragon accuses the saints, and then God uh, raises up an ability to thwart the attack of the devil by saying that the saints uh, conquered the devil, conquered the dragon by the blood of Christ. Take a look at the next two occasions in which the enemy attacks. Next slide. The dragon persecutes the woman, and again, God raises up, gives wings to the woman like an eagle. She flies away. Can you understand why I'm saying that? If you are like really hung up into details, you're like, what are the wings about? What do the wings speak of? Are they like made out of like real feathers or what type? Are they wax? What are they made out of? You know, again, don't, don't, don't miss the, the big picture of what's trying to be conveyed here for trying to focus in on all these like literal details of the story. I don't think personally the book of Revelation is meant to be read trying to figure out and uncover and unveil every little minor detail. It's meant to chronicle a story that ultimately at the end of the day, as we will see here in chapter 12, 
that even though the dragon is powerful, even though the dragon possesses authority and possesses ability to destroy and to attack and to wreak havoc upon this earth, at the end of the day, Jesus is seen as the dragon slayer. And that's really good news. Because that's the point, is that even though Satan is powerful, Jesus has the sword. Jesus is the one that will slay the dragon. That's what's going on here. So chapter 12 basically tells us about these scenarios. And then again, Satan realizes he does not have the ability, he doesn't, is not fully accomplishing his task. And that gives way to chapter 13, where he now empowers the first beast, which I said most scholars would agree that this is sort of some sort of uh, world government. Uh, some scholars, you know, believe that this is referring to, you know, what I, I have written up to, like the Antichrist. You need to know that the word Antichrist never appears in the book of Revelation. It appears, like, for example, in 1 John. And the idea is actually speaking about a world leader, a world ruler. So the reality is, is that sometimes people get all hung up, like, you know, this is one day a world leader is going to come. Possibly so. I believe that's probably what's going to end up happening. But what you need to understand is that Satan is not innovative. Satan is just going to keep doing what he's always been doing, which is he empowers leaders, despots, controllers, people who bring about oppression on the people. So one day when a world leader perhaps will arise, that would be like an Antichrist or be identified maybe as the Antichrist or the son of perdition, or if you want to be biblical and call him what he really is in the book of Revelation, the beast, Satan will ultimately be the one that will empower him, just as he is empowered. Guys like Hitler, Stalin, you can go down the list, Caesar Nero. Does that make sense? Satan is just going to keep doing what he's always been doing, which is just bringing about and empowering evil people to oppress, to destroy, to attempt to thwart the good work of God upon the planet. Satan also realizes that obviously there's another really great opportunity which he has to be able to deceive the minds of people is not just simply through world government, world government, but also through world religion. And this is just all types of religion that don't see Jesus Christ as central. And here's basically what he does. He empowers the second beast. The second beast, I think Jesus would identify as a false prophet. This is seen basically as world religion, a way of uh, trying to attempt to create relationship with God apart from the mediator that God has provided, i.e. Jesus. That's the point. So the enemy, the dragon, is at work behind the scenes in all of these, whether overtly attacking and having his attacks thwarted, or behind the scenes by way of raising up beasts, number one, world government, beast number two, religious society and religious uh, settings. Does that make sense? That's kind of what we're looking at. So with that being said, what I want to do now is I want to basically begin to jump into this larger, broader discussion, this concept of trying to understand our enemy. Again, not so that we can spend a lot of time being impressed by him, but so that more so than anything else, we would not be ignorant of his devices, we would not be ignorant of his ways, but rather that we can look and spend our energy looking to Jesus, the dragon slayer, who will help us and aid us and strengthen us and bring about deliverance. The reality is this, what I want to propose to you is this, is that most of us in this room, if not all of us, have had occasions in our lives 
things that we've not been able to describe or feelings that have just overcome us and overwhelmed us. We have not been able to describe it or pinpoint it. And a lot of that can be simply because of the fact that we're sinful, fallen people, but some of it, in a lot of ways, can also be attributed to demonic activity at work, harnessing certain elements and certain things in our lives to keep us in sort of this funk, keep us in this terror, keep us in this fear, paralyze us in our lives. If you're a Christian, let's say, for example, and you constantly feel condemned, if you're somebody that has struggled with suicidal thoughts, and let's say you're a Christian, you love Jesus, you don't know why you felt like that, and you are always, say, speaking to yourself in the third person. How do you explain that? How do you account for that? Because it's certainly not you telling yourself that. But the reality is I think there are demonic activities at work trying to destroy, trying to bring about our destruction, and trying to thwart God's good purposes in our lives. What you need to understand as well is this. Satan, as a formidable foe, he's not, I mean, he, he's not omnipresent, meaning he can't be everywhere at once. He's the prince of demons. He's not everywhere at once. So the reality is, is that kind of like a general, you know, like a head general of an army, Satan's kind of busy. He's probably spending a lot of time worried about guys like Billy Graham, big guys. Most of us, he's probably just sends one of his lower rank demons to, to take care of us. Some of us probably doesn't even do a lot of work because he looks at our lives and realizes we're already entangled in certain other areas and certain sinful things that he doesn't need to keep sending in demons to try to destroy us. But what I want to try to do is give some sort of a biblical groundwork to try to understand how do we understand his ways in order to bring us back into a right relationship with Christ and thinking about Christ as the dragon slayer. All right, so that being said, what I want to try to do now is I want to just jump in and take a look at some of these tactics. Uh, the great Puritans used to describe it this way, that Satan has these devices by which he works. All right, He has these devices, and the devices in which Satan works is through the world, the flesh, and the devil. These three main ways in which the enemy uh, works, the world, the flesh, and the devil. These are three ways in which I think if we are to be keen, be aware of the devices that the enemy uh, works and tries to destroy us, tries to bring about the wrecking of our souls and of our relationships and our lives. We need to be aware of these things, the world. So I want to take a look at these things kind of one by one. So tactic number one has to do with the world. First John chapter 2, verse 16 basically defines the world like this. It says that it's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the boastful pride of life. The lust of the flesh basically is this. It's a strong desire for physical things. It's a sense in which we live in the world where we strongly desire something physical. It's the lust of the flesh. We live, obviously, in a material world, physical world, all right? And with that being said, we are very much so affected and persuaded by physical realities. And basically, the way that Paul and John and the others would write about this in the New Testament, and these is that the strong longing and desire that we have in our heart that basically drives us. You might want to put it this way. It's the idea of being driven. You are so driven by the deeds or by the concept of living in this fleshly world that you it overrides, it overruns your ability to even think about living for God. That's the way the Bible would describe lust of the flesh. Uh, the word lust, we sometimes in our English think of it in terms of a negative connotation. 
uh, you lust after a female through porn, lust in a very strong type of a term. Now, in the New Testament, the word lust uh, comes from a word that basically just means strong passions. In fact, some other translations can also be uh, interpreted or translated as zeal. So there's uh, ways in which that particular word is translated in the New Testament where it says zeal. Other times it's translated lust. Again, if you go back to the root meaning of it, it just means very strong, compelling emotion that drives you. So what he's basically saying is that there's this lust of the flesh in and of our body. We, are, we basically adopted the life of our parents, Adam and Eve. So we have these desires in the flesh to long for things in the flesh. I'll give you an example, probably the, one of the most obvious ones with regard to sex. Sex is a good thing that's in the flesh that God has given to us. It's, gift, it's a gift from God to be enjoyed within a marriage. But if that uh, desire for physical relationship uh, gets overridden, and you just say, I don't want it for marriage, I want it now, and you take it for yourself right now, there will be consequences that you'll pay. You'll feel defiled. This is why one of the reasons after times of people engaging in fornication and sexual uh, adultery and things of that nature, they try to take showers, they try to clean themselves, because somewhere inside their soul, they feel very, very defiled and very filthy. This is what the lust of the flesh engages and brings about. The lust of the flesh. The second thing is the lust of the eye. This is the idea where we have these strong desires uh, through sort of the eye gate. Uh, this concept where you see things. Our eyes are like a gate. They allow us to see things, and once our eye sees it, then we desire it. We lust after it. We crave it. This is exactly what happened with Adam and Eve, or particularly with Eve. She sat there, she saw the fruit, and it says that she saw the fruit and she desired it. So while she's sitting there looking at the fruit and desiring it, all of a sudden, the dragon, but in this case, he's a serpent, comes, and he says, it looks great, doesn't it? Why don't you indulge? Why don't you eat it? And she's kind of going back and forth in her mind. She's like, I'm not really sure. Then that's when the dragon comes in, and he says, did God really say you can't have it? Or is God actually withholding something really good from you? That's the ways, oftentimes, in which the dragon whispers to us, He lies to us, and he tries to get us to believe that either A, God is withholding something good from us, that's why he's withholding it from us, because he knows it's good, and knows if we engage it, then, you know, he's just trying, he's he's not a good God. So we call the question God's goodness, or sometimes we have these ideas that, you know, maybe God doesn't really know what's best for our lives, and we bite. I'm going to read you kind of a passage uh, from one of these books uh, by Thomas Brooks. Here's what he says. To present the bait and hide the hook, to present the golden cup and to hide the poison, to present the sweet, the pleasure, and the profit that may flow in upon the soul by yielding to sin, and by hiding from the soul the wrath, the misery, that will certainly follow the committing of sin. By this device, he, Satan, the dragon, took our first parents. So here's what I need you to think about. I need you to look at it this way. That those things that oftentimes we see with our eyes and we think, that's good. I want that. I will long for that. I will lust for that. I will stop at nothing until I get that. I need you to think about probably a lot of those things are nothing more than the bait. You're looking at the bait. But somewhere in the bait, hidden within the bait, is a hook. And that hook will destroy you. 
I mean, think about it. It's like a person, an angler, who's out uh, fishing, and he baits his hook with something that looks nice, and the dumb fish sees the bait, and all of a sudden bites the hook, bites the bait by biting the hook, and now the owner or the fisher now gets the fish and eats and devours the fish. That's exactly what the devil, the dragon, does to us. He tries to deceive us, tries to get us to look at the bait, to be wowed by the bait. We see the bait. We think the bait looks tantalizing to the eyes. It looks really good. It looks like it will be something that will bring me life, something that will help me, something that will move me along, something that will give me identity, give me uh, strength, give me ability, bring comfort to my soul. So we bite the bait, not aware of the fact that there's a hook inside that. That's why Thomas Brooks says, we're not aware. We, we look at the cup. The cup's beautiful, but what we're not aware of is in spite of how beautiful the cup is, there's poison in the cup. But the reality is what I need you to be able to see and be aware of is that oftentimes those things that we look at and think are beautiful and tantalizing to the eyes are nothing more than the bait hiding a hook. Does that make sense? So what he says. So device number one is the world. He uses the world to cause us to think through the lusts of the eyes, through the lusts of the flesh, and then through the boastful pride of life. And this boastful pride of life is really sort of this idea of um, I will make up my own decisions. I don't need God or any other outside source uh, dictating or giving me light or giving me information or directing my path. I can make decisions on my own. Thank you. That's the idea, that I don't need anybody speaking into my life. When you look at it this way, if you have an entire earth, 6, 6 billion people, all making their own choices as to, you know, in terms of who is most important in their life, meaning themselves, what you have is chaos. You don't have community. You don't have fellowship. You don't have love. You don't have people looking out for each other. What you have is planet earth. That's what you end up having. And the reality is that this is the idea, this is what ends up happening in our life through the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life that basically looks at things and says, I deserve. When we live in a way that we basically operate on the realm of, I deserve this, or I'm entitled to this, watch out. There are, and the enemy is very good at knowing how to bait the hook, particularly for you. Because the reality is, is in this room, certain things that might bait your hook and might be a temptation for you are not going to be a temptation for me, for somebody else sitting next to you. But if you look at it this way, the dragon is a very good sociologist. He studies us. He studies humanity. He has a few thousand years under his belt of studying every human being that's ever lived on the planet. He knows what we are prone to fall for. He knows what type of bait to bait your hook for, and he will do it all the time. And some of you, I fear, are regularly falling prey to this simply because you've not been aware of the devices of the dragon. You're not aware of the fact that just because it looks good, it's actually covering up a hook that will bring about your destruction and your misery. Does that make sense? Contrary to living after the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the boastful pride of life, the response for the Christian, the way the scriptures instruct us, is one, not to love the world. We're not to love this world in which we live in. It doesn't mean that we don't love people in this world, that we try to engage people in this world, but if 
the number one driving affection in our heart is for this world, then we're in the first category. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. The second thing is that we're not to let it shape our values. We're not to let it shape our values. The world in which we live in has this really great ability to help shape our values. You know, that's what commercials do. Commercials have this ability to cause us to think, to cause us to shape the way that we think as to what's valuable. And that's the whole point of commercials is to say, you need, you need this. You need to lose weight off of your midsection. You need to earn more money. You need to, you know, get hair extensions. You need to have, you know, the crow's feet around your eyes taken care of because you are entitled to it. So just drop, you know, four easy payments of $49.50 and you too will just look just like this lady here, all right? And the idea is that there are hooks hidden oftentimes within the bait that we're so prone to take. What we ought to do as believers is not let the world dictate what our values should be, but let God's word dictate and lead and bring forth and demonstrate what our values should be. Does that make sense? The last thing is this, is that we're to live through Jesus as crucified to this world, not living for this world, not living after the every little uh, voice that arises in this world and says, follow me. Now, we are living after Christ and we follow Christ. That's why Jesus said, my sheep, they hear my voice, my true sheep. They're not going out after every other false shepherd that arises and says, follow me. I have better pastors over here. Jesus says, my sheep, they know my voice and they follow me. Take a look at the next slide. Tactic number, number two that we'll look at is, uh, it says the world, we're supposed to say the flesh. The world, the flesh. The next thing is the flesh. Um, basically, the flesh is this. It's a really, it's this, uh, this dispensation in our, in our lives that is regularly, perennially, constantly longing for the things of this world. It's, and, and really not interested in the things of God. The Bible would describe it this way, just one simple word. It's the natural man. It's the natural human being, the natural person. We are naturally born as individuals that really, truly don't want the things of God. One of the surest, most uh, positive ways of identifying, if you here today, if you're a Christian, is to ask yourself, what are the deepest driving passions in your heart? Do you understand? And I'd ask you this, what are the deepest driving passions in your heart? If the deepest driving passions in your heart are to commit adultery on your wife, to steal money from your job, and go to church on Sunday and ask God to forgive you and do the whole thing, whole thing over again next week, I'd honestly have to say you're really not a Christian. You look like a Christian, you act like a Christian, but you're really not a Christian. A Christian is one who will not necessarily not fall because a Christian may do everything I just described, may cheat on his wife, may commit horrible atrocities, may steal large sums of money, but at the end of the day, his deepest, greatest longing and desire is to want to walk with Christ. And that means when sin interferes that, with that relationship, he confesses it. He cries out to God for mercy. He asks God and brings and submits himself to the body, submits himself to other brothers and sisters in Christ, and is willing to be examined by the leadership of his church, by the friends that he has within the body of Christ, because, you know, quite frankly, the deepest desire of his heart is Christ. Is it making sense? 
But the way the devil oftentimes tries to trick us and stump us and destroy us is to try to attack us through the flesh. And he brings these things in front of our lives to get us to stumble, to get us to fall. And then when we fall, he kicks us when we're down and we feel horrible about ourselves. We feel condemned. So the reality is the response for believers and Christians is really to this, to recognize that we're no longer under the bondage of the flesh. A Christian is somebody that has been set free from the bondage of the flesh. You're no longer a slave to it, meaning you don't have to be a slave or in bondage to that particular thing. God has made a way, provided the ability to be set free from those things. The second thing is to walk sort of in this conscious submission to the Holy Spirit. I love to tell people this all the time, because you know, I talk to people all the time that are sort of young and trying to figure out, like, I'm just trying to figure out what God's will is for my life. And I love to tell people, the only reason why you're asking that question, the only reason, because you're a Christian. That to me, I, I marvel at that, to be quite frank. And I want others to marvel at that, because that is a miracle and an evidence of grace in your life. The only reason, the only reason anybody in this world would at least have any type of question in their mind saying, God, what do you want for my life? It's because you're one of God's children. It's awesome. Final thing is this, is that we're to really mortify, put to death the deeds of the flesh. See, here's the problem, especially if you're a Christian. Sometimes Christians have sort of this propensity to kind of, uh, to just, to suppress the flesh to put it out of sight, to, uh, to not engage it as much as we should or we really want. And we try to kind of tamper with it here and there. We you know, reserve certain areas in our life where we'll engage it at one point or another, and then we kind of walk away from it. But here's what basically Paul says. We're to mortify the deeds of the flesh. That means to put it to death, to kill it, not stroke it, not feed it, not hang out with it, not put it in the closet until we want it a little bit later, but to kill it. And one of the reasons why I think Christians have this tendency, this propensity of always going back into sin, is because rather than mortifying or putting to death the deeds of the flesh, we're just playing with the deeds of the flesh. We're just sort of suppressing them a little bit, starving them a little bit, until a little bit later, and then we feed it a little bit. All right? Last thing I want to look at is this. So tactic number one is the world. Tactic number two, which the enemy tries to use, is the flesh. Tactic number three is the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil are our adversaries working, trying to destroy, trying to take us down. I want to give you guys a real fast uh, look. In fact, I might have to go back in a slide if they're able to. Uh, I want to give you a couple names by which the Bible describes the devil. And maybe these will help you think in different terms about him. The way the Bible describes the devil, it says of him like this. He's uh, the morning star, uh, Beelzebub. He's an evil one. He's the enemy, the devil, liar, murderer, father of lies, ruler of this world, Satan. He's the god of this world, Belial, prince of the power of the air. He's the lawless one, a destroyer, a badden. He's a great dragon, deceiver, serpent, accuser. Doesn't sound like the type of guy you want to make your friend, all right? The point is that he's, he's a formidable foe that really seeks to bring about our destruction. Does this make sense? does not have our best interests in mind. He is real. He's powerful. He's strong. He has abilities. And the reality is some of us are succumbing to his power and succumbing to his abilities, not by blatant, outright worship, but even by simple ways of just simply giving into the lust 
of the flesh. These are his devices in which he uses. The last thing I want to look at, in fact, um, I got so much material. Uh, like I said, I could be speaking for four and a half hours on this. I'm not going to. That's what we're going to break this up. So I'm going to try to get through as much as I can. In fact, I just got one more I'm going to do, and then we're going to wrap it up with some worship, um, try to keep it consistent with first service. And what I want to do is I just I want to take a look at one last item here. And the last uh, tactic that we need to be aware of, the world, the flesh, and the devil, in terms of the devil, there is this mentality of satanic attack that comes upon our lives. But the way the Bible defines it, and oftentimes one of the reasons why we don't oftentimes think in terms of demonic attack, is because oftentimes we're looking for uh, the spectacular. You know, we've been conditioned to think about Satanism and satanic attack and spiritual attack in sort of the uh, extreme, right? Like Rosemary's baby, or someone like levitating, right? Or someone like throwing up split pea soup and it just looks nasty and you're like that's got to be demonic or you ran into some guy downtown and you're like that guy's for sure demonic or you walk into costco and these midget demons are running around costco totally unattended stealing swiping food out from underneath your feet you're like that is my fried wonton midget demon just stole it you know and and we, we tend to think of it in these terms what i want to try to do is i want to give you guys at least two categories to think about uh, the demonic. The first of which is I'm just going to call the common demonic. The common demonic. And then next week we'll spend some time looking at sort of the blatant demonic. The blatant demonic is like uh, uh, being, you know, oppressed. Um, people being possessed, let's say. Uh, horrible types of uh, demonic, evil type activities happening. I want to take a look at uh, just one today in terms of the common demonic. And it basically boils down to this first one we'll look at and then we'll wrap it up is this. It has to do with pride. Do you know that pride, pride is basically part of this common demonic? I want you to take a look at this verse. This basically, most scholars, a lot of scholars, uh, some, they debate as to who this is referenced to. I think it actually references probably Satan in terms of before he actually became Satan or identified as Satan. A lot of scholars believe that before Satan became Satan, he was known as Lucifer. And what had happened was what you're going to read about here, and it was through pride that it transformed him to basically being booted out of heaven and destroyed. Created sort of this accuser, this anger, this hatred towards God. And so it says this in Isaiah 14, verse 12. How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn? You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars, and I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly as far as it reaches to the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high, and you are now brought down to Sheol in the far reaches of the pit. Most scholars would agree that one of the key uh, elements to Satan's fall was pride. Pride comes from Satan. Pride is a satanic characteristic. And curiously enough, is pride is something that is in each and every one of us. By nature, we are prideful. It's a curious thing to me that even in Western body of literature, for example, uh, Bennett's Book of Virtues, that even within that book... Uh, there's not a virtue that has to do with humility. It's one of the reasons because Western thinking, Western mindset don't, does not value humility. In fact, quite the opposite, we value pride. We say we want our children to have pride. We want people to have pride in what we do. And I think to some degree, I think I understand what that means, is that we want to be able to have a confidence and whatnot. But the reality is, is this idea of 
feeding and fueling our minds and our conscience with pride is really, I think, to basically put it this way, is an idea that for the most part originates from the dragon. It is his chief and number one characteristic that brought about his downfall. So I would basically say this, pride is a demonic characteristic that is never good in God's people. It's pride that brings about division in the body of Christ. It's what James says. Why do you guys have division among you and wars and yada, yada, yada? It's because basically it boils down to this. You're all prideful. You're all fighting your own way. You're all trying to make things work into your particular perspective. Pride is at the root of all division, destruction. It was what divided or separated Satan, the dragon, from God. Is what will bring about our downfall. But what I want to finish on is this. Pride is exactly what Jesus came to slay, particularly in his entering into our world. It was Jesus who was king of kings, lord of lords, possessor, creator, maintainer of heaven and earth, who laid aside all of this, all of his authority, all of his worship, all of his glory in that sense, and entered into our world as Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, humbling himself to the point of a servant. It was Jesus who takes off his regular gown in terms of a loincloth and gets on his hands and knees the master, the discipler of his own people. And he says, I'm going to wash your feet. I will serve you. Jesus is the exact opposite, the epitome of pride. Jesus is humility. And so the characteristic trait that God looks for, that represents, that looks like our Savior is not pride. That's the dragon. It's humility. This is why we love Jesus. If you've never seen the movie or the program, I should say, uh, Undercover Boss, you guys ever seen that? Have any of you ever seen that? Raise your hand. Okay, here's your homework assignment this week. Go figure out how to watch an episode of that online. All right, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. This program is amazing. What it is, it's about, it's about bosses of big, massive, multi-kajillion dollar industries who are totally out of connection, out of touch with their businesses, and they basically go undercover as a regular worker, and they learn the ropes. They literally humble themselves, and it's hard for some of them because they're driving, they're used to Ferraris and all their nice cars and everything else, and then they basically go on and take upon themselves a blue-collar job, and I look at that and I just think, how much even greater did Christ lay aside glory, heaven, beauty, power, authority, Take upon himself the form of a servant to come and seek and save people who have done nothing but belittle him from the beginning. That's your savior. That's the dragon slayer. That's how Jesus conquered. This is why we love Jesus. You understand how the devices of the enemy work? I hope you do. I hope you at least get a little bit of a foretaste of what is at work to bring down your soul, to bring about a disconnect between you and your relationship with God. Jesus is the path of life. Satan does nothing but seek to destroy, devour, and kill. This is why we love Jesus. We're going to sing. We're going to respond right now. 
We're going to give our worship and our praise to Christ. We have Nick come on up and lead us in some worship. This is an opportunity and time for us to give back to God our praise. It's a time for us to give our tithes and our offerings. If you're one of our guests here, keep your money. We just want you guys to know Jesus. If you're somebody here that loves this church, you're part of this church, this is your church family, it's a way for us to give joyfully and gladly back to Christ. We're going to sing. We're going to partake of communion. We're going to basically just have an opportunity to confess our sin to Christ. If you're here and there's sin in your life, there's things that have been basically uh, separating you from God, this is the opportunity for you now to confess that before Christ and ask him to wash you, ask him to cleanse you, ask him to make things right. The amazing thing is that Jesus has the power and the ability and the desire to remove those barriers in your relationship. I'm going to pray. We'll sing. We'll give. We'll partake of communion. We'll confess. We'll do it joyfully because he's a great God. Father, we just want to say thank you for your great, a great love that's been demonstrated through Christ, our Savior, who's not prideful. There's not an ounce of pride in Christ. He possesses all things, upholds all things, created all things, endures all things, even though he's belittled and shamed and mocked and attacked. And yet he's humble. That's a God that we want to worship. You're a God that we want to come to and confess our sin. The fact that we stumbled in areas of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we just want to sing to you and love you and give to you and confess to you and lift our affection up to you.